Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Got a good news show for you this week. Some interesting stories to cover. Uh, we a little bit more to cover from DEF CON. And uh, in particular, a story that made a lot of headlines about the Vote Hacking Village. They had another one of those this year. And uh, the one that made the headlines most was an 11-year-old who was able to hack a replica of the Florida Secretary of State's website to change vote totals. We'll talk about that. Uh, also, uh, we'll talk about how banks are, quote-unquote, secretly using... Smartphone data to help try to uh, prevent fraud by uh, monitoring how you use your phone. Uh, I got an interesting story about Amazon's Echo and how there's a program to actually help deter would-be burglars. Um, we'll talk about uh, DNA service 23andMe. Of course, we've talked about that multiple times on the show. Uh, and how they are starting to restrict access to its massive DNA databases, though I'm not sure if that goes far enough. We'll talk about that. And finally, we'll talk about Facebook's... Uh, virtual private network app, VPN app, that was pulled from Apple's App Store due to, get this, privacy policy violations. Surprise, surprise. Okay, so let's start with uh, this article about banks. So um, I ran across this article in 9to5Mac, uh, which is great if you're a Mac person. It's a, it's a great website. And uh, it referenced uh, a New York Times article. And uh, it's about how Banks, I, I guess, are using their bank apps. If you've never used one, they're actually quite handy. Uh, you can deposit checks with them. You can check your balances. You can make transfers. You can do a lot of stuff through the bank apps. And of course, it's it's, it's secure in the, in, in the sense that it's all encrypted. Uh, all, all the traffic between your app and the bank is completely private. Um, of course, secure is a hard word to throw around these days because there's so, been so many breaches. And, you know, if your device or your computer is compromised in some other way, then, you know, there's still ways to get at that data. But that's true of just about anything you want to do on a smartphone or a computer these days. So anyway, uh, the banks are using their apps um, to, you know, see how you use your phone, even how you hold your smartphone to try to prevent fraud. Um and I'm sure at this point you're all well-trained by me to be paranoid and you're starting to think about how this might be used for some creepier purposes as well. So I'm going to just read you from this article from 9to5Mac, which itself uh, references the New York Times article. The New York Times gives one example of how an attempted million-dollar fraud was detected. Uh, a few months ago, the, so the software picked up unusual signals coming from one wealthy customer's account. After logging in, the visitor used the mouse's scroll wheel, something the customer had never done before. Then the visitor typed on the numerical strip at the bottom or at the top of the keyboard, not the side number pad the customer typically used. Alarm bells went off. The RBS system blocked any cash from leaving the customer's account. An investigation later found that the account had been hacked. Uh, quote uh, from uh, Mr. Hanley says, quote, someone was trying to set up a new payee and transfer a seven figure sum. He said we were able to intervene in real time and stop that from happening. Unquote. The paper's Stacy Cowley gives other examples of data captured by these systems. Quote, when clients log into the Royal Bank of Scotland account, software begins recording more than 2,000 different interactive gestures. On phones, it measures the angle at which people hold their devices, the fingers they use to swipe and tap, the pressure they apply, and how quickly they scroll. On a computer, the software records the rhythm of their keystrokes and the way they wiggle their mouse, unquote. The systems can even deliberately cause glitches to test your response. It can speed up the selection wheel you use to enter data like dates and times on your phone or make your mouse cursor disappear for a fraction of a second. Quote, everyone reacts a little bit differently to that, uh, said Francis Z 
Zelazny, BioCatch's chief strategy and marketing officer. Some people move the mouse side to side, some people move it up and down, some bang on the keyboard, unquote. While it's an impressive way to help confirm the identity of customers, privacy advocates are concerned. Quote, what we have seen across the board with technology is that the more data that's collected by companies, the more they will try to find uses for that data, said Jennifer Lynch, a senior lawyer for Electronic Frontier Foundation. It's very small leap from using this to detect fraud to using this to learn very private information about you, unquote. One example given is when a hand tremor might tip off a bank to a medical condition, which might then result in increased health insurance premiums if the bank is the insurer. Okay, so I'll stop reading the article there. That's starting to get a little bit um, into the why the privacy stuff matters. For me, you know, yes, that sure, that is one particular case where you could envision that, you know, all these sensors that are built into all of our smartphones um, might be able to, you know, determine a hand tremor. And, you know, what what might you infer from that and those kind of things. Um, it's certainly something that we need to be careful about. We need to be cognizant of. For me, it really comes down to identification and that what, you know, what about cases where somebody believes they're being anonymous um, or believes they're not being monitored at all and not realizing that they may be getting identified by their smartphones. And just to give you an idea, Little Brother, by the way, is a great book. It's by Cory Doctorow. I've recommended it many times. It's a really fun read. It's very entertaining. Um, but just to give you an idea, uh, one of the things in this not-too-far-in-the-future dystopian society uh, was a school at which the cameras watched the students all the time. But they identified a lot of the students not only from face, but by gait, the way that they walked. Uh, and that is not a stretch. That is actually being done. Um, and so what the kids did to try to sneak out of school without being uh, seen or, or tracked was obviously they put a big, you know, hat on or something to, to, to the mask the face. They would put pebbles in their shoes to throw off their own natural gait so that their gait was not recognized. So, okay, obviously that's a book of fiction, but that's, that's kind of where you need to start thinking when you're uh, about this stuff. And that's where a lot of this stuff is heading. If you want to not be recognized in public by automatic systems and cameras everywhere and the smartphones in your pocket that are, that are, that are tracking how you move, the way you move, how quickly you move, where you move, um, it's going to be really hard to not be identified. And you know, I, there's a lot of great stuff we can do with this technology. We just have to figure out some way to do this in a way that doesn't violate privacy. All right. Now, as promised, I told you there would be some more DEF CON stories. DEF CON, of course, is the hacking conference uh, that happens once a year in Vegas uh, in the August time frame. There's also one called Black Hat, um, but most of the interesting stuff seems to come out of DEF CON, uh, which uh, from everything I've heard is billed as the true hacker conference, whereas uh, uh, Black Hat has become a little more commercialized. But anyway, uh, so one of the things they started, I don't know if it was last year, but it started getting a lot of press last year, was a, hack, a vote hacking village. Uh, which is to say that they put together a set of voting machines, electronic voting machines that they could assemble. And the voting machine manufacturers are not giving these things out and they're not, they're not allowing people to buy them for these purposes. So they've had to go to like eBay and uh, various state auctions and things to try to pick these things up. Uh, nevertheless, still trying to find ones that are, that are still in current use. Uh, and they did, a, did that again this year, and it sounds like they expanded it, and there was some interesting stuff that came out of this. So uh, there's an article from ThreatPost. I'm just going to read you a little bit from that, and then we'll talk about it. The Vote Hacking Village invited attendees, including kids as young as six, to study and identify vulnerabilities in election equipment used around the United States, as well as other nations. 
NSA and former Trump White House cyber czar Rob Joyce joined the proceedings, noting from the DEFCON stage in a talk that, quote, there are people who are going to attempt to find flaws in those election machines, whether we do it here publicly or not. So I think it's much more important that we get out, look at those things and pull on it, unquote. The Voting Village features hand-on experience with at least nine types of voting equipment, including voting machines, e-poll book systems, election-related security appliances, etc. Almost all of which were uh, almost all of which are in use in elections today. Participants were able to find or replicate a range of vulnerabilities, including passwords stored on the machines with no encryption, to buffer overflows in critical input routines. Another hacker. Oddly uncovered 1,784 random files, including MP3s of Chinese pop songs, hidden among the operating system files on another voting machine. In terms of exploits, white hats were able to show uh, an array of disturbing hacks. These included everything from prank-level successes, i.e. hacking a voting machine to play uh, GIFs and music, GIFs being animated video, to deeply concerning... Participants were able to hack a mock election to give an unlisted candidate the most votes, and an email ballot was altered so that the recorded vote was different from what was selected. For instance, active Diebold TSX voting machines were found to be running on expired SSL certificates from 2013, and the Diebold machine locks turned out to be easily hackable. A hacker was able to reprogram a Diebold TSX to play GIFs, and music after uploading a Linux operating system. Also, Diebold poll book machines, specifically the Express Poll 5000, were found to be vulnerable to having their easily accessible memory cards removed from the top of the machine and replaced with a market purchase copy preloaded with alternative voting poll information. This means that voters that attempt to vote at a polling place may find that they are no longer in the precinct records or other voters could be added who could then vote in that polling place. Disturbingly, the hack can be easily performed by a voter within five seconds using a distraction or by a poll worker with access to all machines. Okay, so that was that's that article. Let's unpack a little bit. So um, when they talk about white hats, they're talking about white hat hackers. These are hackers that are out there altruistically trying to hack things in order to find bugs and report those bugs responsibly, not to exploit those bugs for personal gain. Um, so that term was thrown around. We talked about SSL certificates. Those are, um, that's how we do encrypted communications and that's how you verify who you're talking to. Uh, the fact that they were expired in 2013, I'm not sure that's a big deal because they're, they're probably bought these machines off the, th- off the secondary market anyway. So they may have been old and not, out of, uh, not being kept up to date. Um, you know, but what is obvious is that these machines are hackable, very hackable. Uh, and if there's no paper voting record, there's no way to verify whether or not the results coming out of these things are accurate. You can't go back and audit them. You can't go back and make sure they were correct. You just have to trust them. And that we just, we just can't have that. And unfortunately, there's many states, I think there's still five states today, uh, that are completely um, paperless ballots. Uh, and we can't have that. Um, actually, we're going to be doing an, I'll be doing an interview, uh, hopefully next week, um, about uh, our current uh, election security status with someone from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. So stay tuned on that one. One more point I want to make about this because it because uh, it made the headlines, uh, and I'll read from just a, very briefly from another story. One of the more highly publicized stories was of an 11 year old who successfully hacked a replica of Florida Secretary of State's website to change published vote totals. 
In a statement regarding the event, the National Association of Secretaries of State said it is, quote, ready to work with civic-minded members of the DEFCON community wanting to become part of a proactive team a proactive team effort to secure our elections, unquote. But the organization expressed skepticism over the hackers' abilities to access the actual state websites. Quote, it would be extremely difficult to replicate these systems since many states utilize unique networks and custom-built databases with new and updated security protocols, it read. While it is undeniable websites are vulnerable to hackers, election night reporting websites are only used to publish preliminary, unofficial results of the pu- uh, for the public and the media. The sites are not connected to vote counting equipment and could never change actual election results, unquote. So I wanted to read that because it's a fair point. And, you know, when these articles come up and you see these stories, 11-year-old hacks Florida election results, you know, they often don't say that it was a replica of the Florida, you know, website. And they don't mention that the website is only for, you know, media purposes. It's not the actual, you know, results that are reported when the election gets counted. Um, so it's, I think it's important to note that a lot of those details are often overlooked in the stories and you got to take, you know, these things with a grain of salt and you got to read and uh, go deeper on the stories. But election hacking is a really big problem and it's something that is entirely too easy. And because we have nothing but proprietary systems that do not allow third party vetting, we don't know how good their software is. And I'm betting that it's horrible. Just given what we've seen in these hacking villages, the physical design that allows access to the hard drive in, in a couple of minutes. I actually watched a video uh, where this reporter reached up into the top of this voting machine and without really any tools, pulled out the hard drive. And once she pulled out the hard drive, it went into a reboot mode where it gave him her full administrator access to that terminal. That's just horrendous. Um, we just can't be having this. We, we've got to have, um, there's a big states' rights issue here, and that's where a lot of these guys, uh, these states um, come down saying, hey, you don't tell us how to run our elections. That's a state matter. Okay, but we've, we really need at least federal guidelines on the minimum security standards uh, for these things, including risk-limiting audits um, for every election, which is a statistics-based uh, thing, depending on, you know, how many people voted and what the spread is on the election and maybe how much it differed from some of the polls or things or whatever to basically determine how likely is it that this result was accurate and to go back and sample the ballots. And you have to have paper ballots to do this. That's the other point is you've got to be able to go back and look at paper ballots. You can't trust the machines uh, to verify, you know, on a random selected statistically accurate basis a subset of the votes to see if there was any wrongdoing. And if it looks, if it looks fishy, then you go and do a full recount. Uh, these are the kind of things we need. And it's not, you know, there's gotta be a balance, right? The, the federal government, there's gotta be some, these are federal elections in a lot of cases. So you've got to have some basic standards set by the government and then the states can implement them, you know, and they want. But I think the other thing that we really need to mandate is that anybody who's doing election equipment has got to be able to open that up for third party inspection to make sure that the hardware and the software is secure. Anyway, I will, hopefully we'll be talking about that more next week um, uh, with uh, an interview with my uh, the, the person from the EFF. So stay tuned on that. All right, a couple more stories here, and then uh, we'll wrap up. So this one I thought was just funny, and I, and I needed to I needed to bring it up because we talk about you know the Amazon Echo products and the, and all the other smart devices now that are kind of the the assistant products that are there listening to what you say, waiting for that special word that wakes them up which I will try not to say on the air um, so that your devices don't wake up Um, and, you know, and then take the next question and try to answer it for you. Well, 
they've got all sorts of other fun things too. And, and Amazon has really been leading the way with adding all sorts of really fun and interesting other things that these things can do. You know, read you a bedtime story or, you know, get you a news brief or, you know, shopping stuff, you name it. It does all sorts of things. Well, one of the things that came out recently was uh, applications that will basically play conversations between people that sound like arguments or sound like mundane everyday conversations about silly topics. They actually contracted Saturday Night Live writers uh, to, to come up with the scripts, uh, though the acting wasn't as good. Um, nevertheless, what this thing does is you tell it to play this, and they're only, I think they're only about an hour long. But they play these hour-long conversations. So the idea being, if you need to leave the house and you're worried about burglars, you you start this conversation going so that if a burglar is you know prowling around, he will hear people inside talking about what appear to be regular mundane things. Um, and then presumably, most burglars don't actually want to find people. They want empty homes. They go on to the next house. So I thought that was really interesting. And who knows? Maybe it works. Of course, if it's only an hour long, I'm not sure. You know, it's not going to help you if you go on vacation. Um, but, uh, anyway, I just thought that was interesting and I wanted to mention that story. Okay. 23andMe, uh, is one of the DNA services like ancestry.com where, you know, you send them a spit sample and they analyze your DNA and, you know, they do various things with it. One of the main things is to help you try to, you know, judge your an- ancestry and maybe help you, you know, flush out your family tree. Uh, but they're all offering other services too, you know, medical services, you know, perhaps, you know, letting you know if you're at higher risk than normal for certain types of cancer or things like that. Um, and these services, knowing that they're sitting on a gold mine of data, uh, also offer this data up to third party developers so that they can take that data and come up with even more interesting uh, uses for that data as well. Of course, that has tons of privacy implications because even if you try to anonymize that data it that really is your fingerprint so if anybody was ever able to you know from some other website like jedcom or some of these other public sites where you can have uh, family ancestry information wouldn't necessarily be hard given your dna to eventually map that to your name uh, and then you know all bets are off if i've got your dna who knows what i could figure out from that and what i might you know get up to with that either for profit-making or for nefarious purposes, right? So anyway, uh, they have come out, I suppose, maybe in light of these dangers and some of the stories that have come up about this have decided to start restricting access to their third-party developers. Uh, Instead of getting access to the raw genetic data, which again is anonymized, so supposedly there's no names associated with this data, um, giving them raw access to the full database, now they're going to put that kind of behind an indirect access thing. They're going to, they'll be able to get like reports and they'll be able to run queries, but they're not going to get raw access to the data. So, you know, if these developers have already downloaded the data, then I assume they'll be able to keep it. So I'm not, you know, I guess this would only apply to future developers. And it's really unclear actually exactly how much fuzzing they're doing on this data, you know, how much they're, uh, how, how much different the, this indirect data is from the direct data and whether or not they still could manage to de-anonymize that data somehow. Uh, But, you know, at least, you know, they're they're acknowledging perhaps that this could be a problem and taking some steps apparently to ratchet things back a bit, which is good. Um, But in reading this article about this, I ran across this other article that I've got that I I want to bring up because it's just weird. Um, This article referred to an article from The Wired magazine in the UK from 2015, 
about a developer who used this data in the database to come up with some software that would allow websites to block people based on their heritage. Now, that sounds probably like it was for nefarious purposes. According to the developer, what they were trying to do is set up safe spaces on the web for like, let's say all female forums. Um, now, I guess if you, I don't know how they do this, I guess, but when you register somehow, they have to somehow match your registration to somebody in the DNA database. And I don't know if they did that, if they told you this or not, if they're just trying to do this in the background. And obviously if they don't find you, then they still can't, they can't use this. But I guess the point is they would have tried to use these things to maybe keep out men, you know, for all in all female formers, or they want to talk about abuse or something like that. Um, you know, if they're, if there are certain minority groups that want to have private spaces and, and they want to keep out other people, I guess that's what they were, you know, that's what this person was saying they could do. Uh, the, one of the quotes was, um, from the article says the user also proposes a safer online dating site that ensures there's a low chance of any potential pairings one day resulting in children with two recessive genes for congenital diseases, or that pharmacies would be able to avoid dispensing drugs to those who might have a predisposition for negative reactions. Okay. So yeah, th I could see the value in those things. And again, we've, with all this data that we, we're generating, this, this digital exhaust that is coming from our daily lives uh, and things that we voluntarily give up, like spit to these DNA places, there's an amazing amount of data on everybody out there. And that data could be used for some really cool, beneficial things. But man, we've got to figure out some way to make sure that it can't also be used for the wrong reasons and without our knowledge. So that is our challenge. And that is um, what we're going to be dealing with going forward. All right, our last story, and it kind of leads to the tip of the week, which actually I think I may have given this tip before, but it's worth covering again. So uh, Facebook bought a company called Onavo, or uh, Onavo, O-N-A-V-O, uh, who made a VPN app, a virtual private network, had a, ran a virtual private network service. And as we've talked about this show many times, um, the way the VPN works, and we've covered this before, but I'll briefly go over it again. A virtual private network sets up a, an encrypted tunnel. And so on the internet, if I'm using this on my computer at home, if I'm trying to go to amazon.com, but I'm going through a VPN, what that really means is it kind of takes, kind of takes like two hops. So the first hop is it goes through my encrypted tunnel between me and my VPN service. So that means that my internet service provider and anybody uh, along the way in the internet, routers and computers and other backbone services can't see that traffic, but then it goes to the VPN service and then it comes out and goes onto the internet as if it was coming from there. So when, when it, from, it goes from there to amazon.com, amazon.com sees that that request came from the VPN service, not from me. Now, of course, I'm probably logged into amazon.com, so it still knows it's me. Um, but the idea being like that, like, let's say I'm on public Wi-Fi, or I'm in a hotel or I'm at a conference, or I just don't trust my internet service provider, which we all have plenty of reason not to. Uh, and I want to protect my traffic for that first bit. You know, I want, I want to keep what I'm doing private, where I'm going, what I'm doing, how much time I'm spending on websites private from, from these people and make sure that nobody can see what I'm doing. Um, so for that first little bit, for that first leg of my traffic, it's all encrypted. It's in a tunnel that nobody can see into. Uh, so the idea behind that is it's private. It's called a virtual private network, a VPN. And so this company Onova was bought by Facebook a while back. And what Facebook did with it is they offer in the Facebook app, you know, click here to protect yourself, you know, and, and encrypt your traffic. But what it's really doing is it's setting up the VPN service so that it can see everything you're doing. Cause it therefore 
routes everything you do on that phone or on your on your computer through Onevo, which is now Facebook, so that they can actually keep track of everything you're doing. So let me read a little bit from this article and uh, to bring this into more focus. It says, Citing sources familiar with the matter, the Wall Street Journal reports Apple earlier this month informed Facebook that the Onevo Protect was in violation of App Store policies implemented in June. Specifically, the software ran afoul of data collection restrictions and parts of the iPhone maker's development agreement covering customer data usage. Referring to the latter, Apple said the Onevo project used data for purposes not directly related to app functionality or for serving up advertising to users. Available as a free download, Onevo's app allowed users to create a virtual private network that routes internet browser traffic to Facebook servers for filtering out malicious content. The app is advertised as a consumer protection tool that blocks potentially harmful websites and secures personal information when utilizing web browsers like Safari. Onevo's Protect FAC webpage notes, Onevo protects Onevo Protect blocks online threats when browsing the web using your iPhone or iPad. To function properly, you need to successfully install a profile during the first launch of the app, which in turn sets up a VPN on the device, unquote. More importantly for Facebook, Onevo granted free access to its users' internet activity and valuable information for firms keen on sniffing out consumer sentiment. According to the journal, data from the Onevo... Uh, was used to bolster Facebook's product and acquisition strategy and help inform industry moves, uh, including the purchase of WhatsApp and venture into live video. So basically, it was clever. (laughs) Facebook said, hey, why don't we offer a free VPN to our users, which will, in turn, allow us to see everything that our users are doing on the Internet, not just the Facebook part, everything. Basically, it kind of turns Facebook into your, into your internet service provider because like your internet service provider, like Comcast or Verizon or AT&T or however you get your internet service at home or on your mobile phone, they can see everything you do. Uh, now, they can't, if, you're, if it's HTTPS, they can't see the contents, but they still know every place you're going and how long you're talking and when you talked and all these kind of things. Um, and that information is just more valuable information to Facebook. They'd love to know every place you go on the web. Uh, and if it's not encrypted, what you're doing on those pages. Uh, and they, so the, the way they did that is they offered a free VPN service and to quote unquote protect you, which it does have the VPN properties, but now you're trusting Facebook with all that information and they have abused it to the point where Apple has said, you can no longer offer this app. Now, I believe that app is still, if you already have that app, it, it's still there and it's not going to uninstall it for you. So uh, the, the tip of the week, which this leads into, is do not use Facebook Protect, which under the covers uses the Onevo VPN. Get your own VPN. Don't use Facebook's VPN. Uh, I would recommend uh, this one called Encrypt, Encrypt.me that works uh, very well for Apple devices, but there's plenty of others. Uh, if you really need simplicity, uh, you might look at TunnelBear. Um, but, uh, another one, as far as true privacy, um, and, and good service, uh, look at express VPN or maybe Nord VPN, N-O-R-D VPN. Uh, and you can get those for both your computer and your, and your cell phones and your smartphones and your iPads. Uh, and, uh, that will protect your, uh, what you're doing. Now it might slow things down a little bit. So if you're doing, you know, you know, uh, trying to do high definition video and things like that, it, it may get in the way. Um, and VPNs are notoriously finicky. I'm just going to put that out there. 
Um, you, it, there will be times when you want to pull your hair out and you're going to want to turn that off. I get it. Um, but where you can, I would certainly on any kind of a public internet uh, situation, uh, I would be using a VPN. And the key is here, don't use Facebook's VPN. Okay, that wraps up our show for the week. Hopefully you got some good info out of that. And uh, I've got some uh, interviews coming up, as I have alluded to earlier. So stay tuned for those. I want to put in another plug-in for the book. The third edition of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons will be coming out anytime now. Uh, despite what the pre-orders say about October and November releases, it actually should be probably next week. So hopefully even before the next uh, podcast comes out, the book will be available for, for, uh, for direct order. You can get that at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Of course, you can get it directly from my publisher, A-Press, as well. Uh, and it's got over 150 tips in it this time. It's, it's getting bigger all the time. It's getting, it, every, every time I put a new edition out, it gets even more comprehensive. And I'm really uh, happy to have A-Press uh, behind me on this one now. They've done some great work to help me get it all edited and nice and pretty. It's got a nice new cover. Um, and uh, if you've already got the old one, there's still some new stuff that you might want to check out. It, it, this stuff changes all the time. And so I try to keep it as updated as possible. And uh, it makes a great gift, um, especially if you're the family IT person and you're constantly asking, answering questions about, you know, should I install this? You know, do I have a virus? You know, what is a VPN? All these kind of things. That's all covered in the book. Uh, so it makes a great gift, too. So you might think about, you know, giving those to some people and then actually take some time back yourself. All right. That'll wrap it up this week. And uh, stay safe, everybody. And as always, don't get caught with your driver's down.